0: Oh, wait. Good morning, family. Good morning. How are we this morning? Well. It oh. is a pleasure to be before you this morning. This is my A R C preaching. It is a pleasure to stand here this morning to open God's word to you and. Um, so if you're joining us today, if you're a visitor, welcome. We're glad to have you here. I uh, come in at time uh, We've been in a summer series called The Fear of the World. So it's a 13-part miniseries, And today is installment number seven. And so uh, I think back in June, uh, Pastor Dean kind of led us all on that first Sunday thinking about this idea of the fear of the book. And he set down really good foundations. And gave us a special the church. So, on one end, we had this sinful spirit of the Lord, and then on the other end, we had this right. So, he kind of laid that foundation, and then every other Sunday, brothers have been coming up to the pulpit, and they've been opening God's word, and they've been instructing us on different aspects of the spirit of the And so, last week, our brother Andrew turned this series the Summer of feast. Right? Really good thing. For our, uh, I like to think more about like a diamond, a diamond with many facets, each different, but each still brilliant in their own way And so, so far in this series, we've been out of the Old Testament, right? Some of us try to forget that there's two testaments the Bible, but we've been out of the Old Testament, you've been blessed. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to introduce the New Testament as well. And at the end of this 13 part series, one thing you should all be able to say is that this doctrine, this idea of the fear of the Lord, it is all around God's Word. It's everywhere, right? And until this series, it's one of those things that's kind of hiding in sight. You kind of see it over here, and you see it over there, and you see it over there. But one of the wonderful things about this series is that we're able to string it along and we see how God's Word is connected all around this idea of the fear. In the previous Sundays, coming I mean, out of the Old Testament, what we've been doing is kind of looking at the children how they relate to the fear of the And then we've been drawing necessary and accurate and right applications to how Jesus This morning, we're going to switch it up. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus, the Son of God. We're coming from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied about the truth. But we are today, we look back to Him, and we're going to see how Christ himself feared the Lord. Not only did he fear the Lord, but we'll read it in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. If we're going to find out that he delighted in the fear of the Lord, he took great joy in the fear of the Lord. And that's a very encouraging thing. So not only are we called to fear the Lord, but our Savior, Christ Himself, feared the Lord. So that's what we're going to look at today from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. And before I do that, let me just let you know that I have one hope and one prayer today that's hoping that prayer will guide our time together. So my hope this morning is that we will recognize that Jesus had an internal reality of the fear of the Lord. And that showed itself externally through righteous action. Right? So it wasn't just a mental exercise. It wasn't just a deep conviction. It wasn't just something that we thought of. He did all those things. All those things were good. But he didn't just stop there. His fear of the Lord. The way that he delighted in it, it actually showed itself out in Christ's action. He actually did stuff as a result of fearing the Lord. And so, my prayer today is that as we see Christ and the way that he feared, in the way that it was an actual reality for him that showed itself out in Christ's action, that we too would do the same thing. And then, my prayer this morning is simply this as members of Jesus' kingdom, as we observe Him and the way that the Spirit of the Lord exceeds Him, then it would also exceed us. that's my hope and that's my prayer. I guess I should pray. So join me in prayer. Lord God, we're so very thankful for this great word. We thank you for gathering us together uh, to worship your name, to fellowship, to sing the song of thine. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for sending Christ. We thank you for the wonderful example that you sets for us in everything in Christian life, even this idea of fear. And so, this morning, Father, my prayer again is that we will observe Christ, observe him in all his beauty, in all his gift, from, especially around this idea of fear. And then, Father, as we look at Christ, then we also live in terms forgive ourselves. And then we, just as Christ does, we take great delight in fear. It's in your Son's name, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. If you have your Bibles, you please turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be coming out of verse 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And I'll read that us and I'll be coming out of it. Therefore, it shall come forth a shoe from the stuff of the and a branch from the roots of your and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon you, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel, might, the Spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the spirit of the Lord. He shall judge by what his eyes see. I'm sorry, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide his by what he is his fears hear. But with the righteousness he shall judge the order, and decide with equity. For the being of the And he shall strike the earth, provided with the With the breath of his lips, he shall kill. Righteousness shall be his belt. I'm sorry, righteousness shall be the belt his And faithfulness, the belt The word of the Lord. So before we get into chapter 11, I think it's really important for us to have a solid understanding of what has succeeded us in chapter 11. I'm going to give you the quickest opening of those chapters you've ever heard in the Bible. So chapter one, as in chapters one through five, actually, they're more of a miracle prophecy. They're more of an overview of the content that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. Right? So in chapter one through five, we're going to see four categories that then are fleshed out throughout the prophecy for the rest of the world. One, we see sin, Judas sin. Two, we see that God punishes sin. Three, you see that God calls it to repentance. And four, you see that God offers salvation in the promised side. Right, so that's chapters one through five. Chapter six, we kind of leave this general prophecy and we get more specific. So in chapter six, where we find Isaiah's condition to God. And right? so you guys probably remember from chapter six, verse one words. In the year that King Zion died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a I in in the train of an the And then a little farther down, we actually hear about this conversation that the Lord is having. And in verse 8, it says, I heard the, birth, the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So that's in verse, that's in chapter six right? I mean, it kind of drops us into a point in history in the Judah Valley Data. Chapter seven takes us a little far in this it introduces us to a war so at the time that Isaiah is prophesying we know that the nation of Israel is now split there's this northern kingdom called Israel and then there's this southern kingdom called Jews and when we read chapter one verse one of Isaiah we find out that Isaiah is actually a prophet to the southern kingdom to Judah. right so when we get into chapter seven we actually see a war that's happening between the northern kingdom and the southern Right? So we have the northern kingdom of Israel, and they partner with the foreign nation called Syria. And then we have the southern kingdom of Judah, and they partner with the kingdom called Assyria. And they actually enter into conflict. Mm-hmm. And this is what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 7. The main thing, I would say the main thing, one of the important things to take away from chapter 7 is that Assyria is raised, is raised up by God as a rod to the Right? So even though the southern kingdom they partnered with Assyria, God later uses Assyria to invade the southern And so Assyria becomes a very important nation in this book of Isaiah, in chapter 1 and 10. Now as we leave chapter 7, this is actually a quick word, I promise you it's almost. Gone. But if we leave chapter 7 and we enter into chapter 8 and 9, they actually form a pattern that is then carry out the chapters 10 through eleven. And that pattern is this. We see God again using Assyria to come to Judah to punish them for their sin. As we go into chapter nine, we also see that God prevents the total destruction. And this is key because the Bible people, like you are, will know that Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. So if they're completely destroyed, there is no salvation, right? But God must still punish sin. So he punishes sin. But yet, still, he keeps a promise to send the Right? So we see that pattern there. Then we also see, as we enter into chapter 9, this promise of Messiah. So chapter 8, they stop short of, their uh, seer, rather, stop short of evading completely. Then, as we enter into chapter 9, we see the promise Messiah. And then we hear multiple pictures of Christ that you probably heard of before. Chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us the child is born, unto us the son of God. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Council, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then part of that pattern, after you are given the picture of God, I'm sorry, the picture of Christ rather, we're also given the picture of what his kingdom will be like. And so later in chapter nine, we hear about how the increase of the government will be ahead and they shall should rule with righteousness and justice. Right? So that's that pattern that we see in chapter eight chapter nine. And then, as we enter in chapter 10 and 11, the same pattern shows up again. We see that Assyria is a rod of wrath to invade and execute judgment on But yet, we see in chapter 10 that God stops it. We see that they get all the way up to Jerusalem, which is the capital, or the son of, capital sorry, the son of the southern capital. I'm sorry, the southern kingdom. But they do not stop, and again, that's important because Christ comes. To them. So we see that God still punishes sin, we see the God still keeps his promise to sit inside. So they stop We enter into chapter 11, which is where we are today, and again we're given a glimpse of who Christ is. Not only are we given a picture of who Christ is in verses 1 through 3, but then we're also given a picture of what his kingdom looks like in verses 4 through 5. So that same pattern that we saw in 8 and 9 now shows up again in chapter 10. That's the end of his history of there is going to be a quid, not to serve. <laughs> okay. So with that, with that pattern in mind, with that history that's defined, let's now jump into our text. Chapter 11, verse four. i I'll read it again for us. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots of bear Now we're given this word picture to start off this picture of Christ. We're talking about this branch where this shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from the roots of Jesse. This word picture is pointing to Christ, right? So we're also given this idea of the stump that we also see in Isaiah chapter six. This idea of the stump is from a tree, and this picture is God cutting down the tree in His judgment against sin, but yet not destroy it. So in Isaiah six thirteen, we hear these words: "And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a tarred oven." The stump remains, with it's fell. Uh, the holy, I'm sorry, the holy seed is its stump. So just like in chapter six, this stump is meant to uh, represent the remnant of Judah. In chapter 11, this stump is meant to mean the same. Right, so it's this remnant of Judah with a slight difference. We're now looking at the divinity king line of Judah. Right, so we go all the way back to Jesse, who we know was David's father. Right, so we go all the way back to Jesse, what we would expect to work for it to be David. But by the time that Isaiah is prophesied David is called God, it. so it's not David, his biological son. It's David that Jesus to God. Okay? And we see that clearly in a couple of verses. We see that in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 5, where Christ is describing David the king. We see that clearly in Ezekiel 34, 23, where Christ is called David my servant. And then in Isaiah the branch, similar thing. It's this word picture about the line of David, this promise that was made to David, that there would always be a king of this And for that branch metaphor, we see that in Jeremiah 25, and again in Zechariah 23. I'm so sorry, Zechariah 23. So again, coming out of chapter 10, you see this massive destruction of God. God tells them, don't trip out. I'm not going to destroy you. But yet they still feel the heat because the Syria is coming. I mean, they're going to come to it. They haven't happened where we are now, kind of it happened later. But they're still, they're still afraid because they know that they have sinned and they know that God will punish sin. But when chapter 11, verse 1, opens up, here is the whole benefit. Because in the midst of instruction, in the midst of God carrying out his righteous wrath, do do 11, verse 1, comes up from Christ. And so we see Christ that gives them hope, even in the midst of their destruction. Right? so if we leave chapter one and we go and I'm so sorry, it's so chapter, we, have to, we have to leave verse one and we go into verse two, after Isaiah identifies the Messiah to come, and from our perspective, He's already come, right? But Isaiah prophesied is forward to the Christ, just like in chapter nine, we're now giving a picture of what the Christ would do. And Isaiah uses three pairs of two characteristics to paint that. Right, so in verse 2, we read this. In the spirit of the Lord, the rest of the the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and light, the spirit of mouth and the fear of the Lord. This should immediately, when we read verse 2, when we start to see that first part, of the spirit of the Lord, the rest of the this should immediately remind us what we read the gospel about by the spirit of baptism. So if you're familiar with any of the gospel accounts after Christ baptized, the spirit of God comes from heaven and rests in him like a dove. So in Matthew 3.16 we read, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold the heavens were open to him. He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming on him. So we see that Christ himself would be an anointed by the spirit of the Lord. And it will guarantee that Jesus is fully equipped for his king's mission in a way that all those evil kings here never were. But the time right now of this prophecy, sitting on the throne is an evil, wicked king named King Ahaz. This man is so wicked, he actually sacrificed his son to a foreign god. So with that in the background, and now we see Christ with these three pair of two, again, who is given to the two. One commentator puts it this way. Speaking of the six deciding characters, it's 5 hundred. All these characterize these truth. Wisdom, the general capacity to have the right judgment understanding, the ability to see to the heart of it, counsel, the ability to divide the right force of action. Here coupled with power is seeing. Knowledge that goes beyond knowing about, for knowledge is enjoying a personal intimate relationship with the person. And when that person is the Lord. The relationship with man across the field showed itself for concern, obedience, and worship. In other words, the branch from the root suggestion would be fully equipped for his kingdom mission. Where other kings of Judah have failed because they lacked one or all those attributes, Christ could not. Even a good king that would come under Isaiah's prophet, or Isaiah's time of the prophet, Hezekiah, who we know is a good king, even he wasn't as good as a king. At the promise of Messiah. Because he like one or maybe more of it. So Christ had them all without measurement. And because he had these characteristics, he is able to carry out his kingdom over in a way that no other king. Amen? Now, as we leave verse 2 and we go to verse 3, it would be a total waste for even Christ to have all those attributes and not put Reminds me of this manly miracle. Anybody remember Derek Coleman, NBA player? He was a great player. No, I won't say he was a good player. Anybody say series, NBA star. Tons of talent and tons of potential. Every once in a while, he would show flashes of greatness. But at the end of the day, his brother man was lazy. He didn't want to work. So I remember Derek Coleman as this superstar. He had tons of potential, but never realized But at the end of the day, having all that potential with him it's a total waste. Right? But having all these attributes that Christ has, and then in verse 3, we read, and his delight shall be in the fear of God. And this is the game changer. Because this delight that he has in the fear of the Lord is like gas, carbon, a gas in the car, or gas in the engine of car. It actually helps him to go. So having this delight in the fear of the Lord was to guarantee that this anointing that Christ had would not go away and so now we're about to read uh, the we continue to separate the verses and that as christ the, light is the, fear of the lord. so again if you remember that that range that pastor deacon with central fear on one hand and vital fear on the other christ is all the way over here together the lighting rightfully holy fully righteously in the fear of the lord and he delights hug the Lord, and actually nonsense to actually take righteous action and that's what we're going to see in the rest of now, I love the way I say it I love it. I kind of have to invite But he makes it very easy to identify the action that Christ takes because he uses the key word every time in a shell, an S-H-A-N-O-N-O. So if you didn't pick it up the first time you read it, I guarantee you you'll never be able to read this part of God's word again and not notice it. It's going to jump out that page. So every time we see this word shell, what we should be thinking in our mind, because Christ the life of the fear of the Lord, he shall do this, or he shall not do this, or he shall do this. So now that we go through the verses, we're going to easily be able to see, because Isaiah into this key word shout, of how Christ takes the delight in the fear of the Lord and actually puts it into action. So he's no better amen. He is our Savior who has his internal reality of the fear of the Lord and then prompts him to go out. So in verse three, before we exit that, we actually see our first shout right there, kind uh, right of in the middle, and it starts like this: "He shall not judge
1: by what his eyes see, or decide size speech, or what his ears do. In other
0: words, Jesus is not going to be a racist, fill in the blank, conspiracy. He's not going to look at your color of the skin. He's not going to look how tall you are, how short you are. He's not going to look at your economic status. He's not going to look at where you come from. None of those external things will Christ look at if they judge you. At the same time, he's not going to be listening to they and them, wherever they and them are. He's not listening to Pierce. He's not listening to Google. He's not turning on Fox News and hearing the latest one and talk about this, that, and the other. He's not going to use those things to decide any of He's going to use those attributes that we just talked about wisdom, knowledge counsel, might, hes going to use these things to make it better and not the other thing? Amen? <laughs> Amen. So, um, the beautiful thing about this is that a portion of verse 3 comes actually to us in a mm-hmm. command from Christ himself and the gospel. So God said 24, says this, Do not judge by appearance; but judge the right Come <laughs> directly to us you have to and the application so, what does this mean for us? It's actually quite simple. We follow the example and you obey know, the demand that our king has given us. And we refuse to engage in judgment based on appearances or based on tradition. To put it another way, we must work to realize Mark King's dream, where he said, I have a dream to buy four little children, will grow up in a nation where they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their skin. Same thing that we're not going to look at appearances, we're not going to listen to all this to get against happening around us. That's not how we're going to do it, that's not how we're going to make because that's not what our kingdom is, doing, right? So, this first shout is getting negative send them to send up the second, child, which is first, all, but with the righteousness, so that is the form and the desire of equity for the meek of the earth. right. So, with that, still keeping King's uh, dream in mind, that's the essence of what we see here in this next chapter. But with righteousness, it should judge the poor, and decide the ethnicity of the, world, the of, the of, the of the Now, verse 3 is what he won't verse 4 is how he build. right? So, it's very similar to what we see in Psalm 72, verse 1 through 4. And this is Psalm the requesting of God. Give the king your justice, God. In your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity you, and the hills of righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Now, take what you find in this shout that Christ, for example, with righteousness judge the poor and decide that he me. And then let's turn over to chapter 10 of Isaiah. We'll read verses one and two. And let's now put these in contrast. So again, we're going to return the 11, we're understand Let so we continue to study the we're going to be put jump over to 10, jump over to 11, jump back to 10, and jump back to 11. So here are these words of chapter 10, verse one. Woe to those who are creating this and the writers were keeping writing oppression. To To aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor by the people. That widows may be their spoil and that they may make the father of spirit. So, reading, but this is Judah. These are, this is God's people who are doing this thing. These jokers are actually writing unjust laws. They're sitting together, coming up with this decree, and actually writing them out with the intention to oppress. And this is God's people, and this is what they're doing. So now, if we read this here, right, and now look at what Christ is doing, we can see how these things work together. So, Christ is not, about God obviously is not about what's happening because He's given this prophecy to Isaiah. And He's obviously not about what I Isaiah was is writing to chapter 11. So, He sees what's happening, He knows what His children are doing, and then He sends Christ to correct them. So, where His people, Judah, are writing these iniquitous where they're oppressing the poor, where they're doing all these things. He then sends Christ full of the fear of the Lord, delighting in the fear of the Lord. And because of that delight in the fear of the Lord, he actually seeks out and will judge the poor with righteousness. Out of the fear of the Lord that he had, out of that delight, he will look to plead the case of the poor. That's what his delight will do. Knowing what the people of Peter are doing, his the will do. Now keep in mind that poverty was never supposed to be a thing among God's people. Right? So God being God, so again, if we remember what uh, I think was dealing read for us early into a lot of uh chapter 15, this will help us to understand why Christ focuses on. So part of that reason is that he knows the conditions that the poor find themselves. Shouldn't actually exist. Shouldn't be a name. So, in Deuteronomy 15, I get the reference earlier for these words. But there will be no more among you for the Lord will bless you. the fruit of flesh. God is given to you. If, one of those, if only strictly obey the voice of the Lord, God, being careful to do all the commandments that I command you to do. Read that first part again. But there will be no more among among the people of God, in the mind of God, poverty should be not exist. to hear in the people of God in the community for you to say that there was a poor person, it's like saying digital. It was supposed to be like a punchline of a joke to ever hear about someone in the public community to be a poor. Wasn't supposed to be a thing. You see that clearly from modern time. But the part that is it, interesting, not interesting, man, the part that it couldn't be was that second part. If you will only strictly obey the voice of the Lord. So we know that they didn't do that. And even God knows it So even though they, he said should not have before, in verse uh, 4, when we jump down to verse 11, which I find amazing, making He goes from verse 4, but we should never have before. Verse 11, where he says this, for there will never cease to be before the man. It doesn't How does he go from verse 4 you'll never have before? Verse 11: The poor will never cease to be. It's in the middle of sin, right? So when we look at poverty, we should look at poverty the way God is poverty. It's a sin issue first. And if it's a sin issue, then Christ is the answer. The church is the answer, right? So even though God is in God, they can't keep the commandments. He then goes and he, he makes provision for the poor, knowing that he should. So verse 11 was going to say in Deuteronomy 15. For there will never cease to be poor in the world. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hands to your brother, to the knees, and to the poor in the world. Right? So this is what they were supposed to do. Knowing that poor people were going to come, this is God being God, knowing that he made provision so they even if they were poor in the land, they would take the Right? But now when we look at chapter 10, verse 1 to 2, I think it was, we see that that's not what they're doing. they actually oppress it. They're not even doing what God has said to do in 2 Rock 15. Right? So Isaiah showed Jesus with the Jesus with the mission to defend, to plead the the Lord. And he does that out of his delight the like, Against all the other people are doing, against what even his own people are doing, Isaiah shows the Christ his delight the fear of the Lord, and how he now puts that into action on behalf of the Lord. On behalf of the Lord on behalf of those who have unto this question. This is what we see our people being motivated by this, by the, the life of people. Amen. So by application, I think it's important for us to realize that defending the case before is Christian worse because of the Jesus. We as the redeemed people of God are being Christ-like and sure that the poor in the world are Christ in the need to that we must resist that narrative that says seeking justice and working to eliminate those things that in chapter 10 of Isaiah, unjust uh, laws, oppression, robbing the poor, whereas Isaiah, Isaiah 4, I'm sorry, Isaiah 11 verse 4, judging the poor with righteousness is somehow anti-gospel, because it it's not. In fact, you're going to see this word, the gospel, as an, an outpouring of the fear of the Lord, So is it the gospel? And if not, we will never be saved by helping someone a problem. We will never be saved by helping to have others' father's concern. But as people of God who are repentant and who their faith in Christ, if we too have the fear of the Lord, like our Lord has the fear of the Lord, these are things that we should be. If our king does it, why are we not? Amen. Right? So, if it's good for our king, it should be good for us too. Uh-huh. So We gotta fight that those days there, people who say that's what the gospel, We say, that's not true. That's not true at all. Did the night of the Spirit of the Lord said that we should be doing these things for our yeah. Amen? Yeah. Um, let me make two more obs- observations for applications. Notice that Isaiah gives English commission to be born to me without making a similar mission to the original. Don't they matter? Aren't they native gods of too? Yes and yes, they matter. And they are native gods image. But this doesn't stop God on the Father, the author of Isaiah's assigning from assigning God the Son to the mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish. What we see here in these first few verses of Isaiah 11 is that this, this guy, the entire God involved in the good work of the people. He's able to assign his mission without giving a similar mission to the great into the, uh, the, uh, the Bible, He doesn't feel this need to say, Oh, I had this mission before. I was also somehow validated. He doesn't do that at all. So if God can speak to them, to the good but now speaking to the rest of his again in the same sense. why can't we do the same thing so why as a christian can i not say black lives matter without giving this need to say all about right the fear of the lord dividing in the fear of the lord calls me to go to those who forgive god it calls me to go to those who believe christ it calls me to go to those who and i can do that in the same way that god focuses christs mission on judging the uh, righteousness of the poor and without missing without other people. The same way that he's able to focus on this, right. is the same way to right. So wherever we find people who are under the circumstances of Isaiah 10, like people who are living under like this world, people who are behind their people who are taking advantage of them, I should, without any problem, be able to say their lives matter and be able to focus on this without putting any shame whatsoever and still take that Okay. Also, I, 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 the other observation I'd like to make in of people is that in verse eleven, I'm sorry, chapter eleven, verse four, we see that the righteous is each of before, but that's there, but so is chapter ten, verse one, and two. I think it's 1 and two. In other words, God has no problem being honest about the history of His people, even though it's not. Yeah, he had no problem at all going yeah. through in verse one and verse two, and he said, "Whoa!" All right. So the way that God said, "Whoa," y'all tripping, and I was making sense about it. He reading the verses to his own people. He comes and he says the Assyrians to judgment for what they did. And God the Father has no problem whatsoever being honest about their history, even though it not why are we it? when well, we want to give the honest assessment of this country? Why are we it? Out of the fear of the Lord and the light of the fear. We see the light of the truth, even if it's unpleasant. Right? So we see God the Father in chapter 10, verses 1 to 2, giving history, giving historical facts that are not pleasant, but He gives them what's And then, after He does that, He sends Christ, with the fear of the the divine of the material to judge the righteousness to the, the poor. Amen. Yeah. Now after verse 4, Isaiah keeps one, our next shell state is found. Still a verse 4, the kind of orders that we have. And with the breath, with he shall strike the earth with the body of the And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the people. So Isaiah now moves from the poor to the wicked. And he does this with another word that we're going to have to count. of. So, when we see this, we see this idea of a rod. Now, the rod was used by God and elsewhere in Isaiah as a letter for the judgment of his sinful people. And so, in Isaiah 10 5, we read, "Woe well, to Assyria, the rod of my hand, the staff in their again, the rod of your So, again, God is in Assyria, he calls him the rod. Later, in Isaiah 31, we read this, the Assyrian will be as at the voice of the Lord, but he strives to provide. So again, this idea of the bride and the hand of God is meant to bring to our mind, get the judgment and the Now this idea of the breath of the lips, you can find this being used judge judgment also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which refers to the second covenant, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord just killed the brother of his God and brings another the appearance of his son. And so now early in Isaiah, in these first few verses, I'm confident that what Isaiah is talking about if the first coming of Christ but we saw it in the gospel, of So when we're going through the series of Mark, this is what Isaiah is talking about. It now appears that he transitioned from there and he's moving us to the end time, this final judgment that will come in Christ's place. So on this day, when Christ brings the rod in the mouth and the brethren with lips, and the judgment will occur, if you are not found in Christ, then the word from chapter 10, verse 3 to 4 will apply to you. So again, if you look back to so Isaiah chapter 10, and let's read verses 3 to 4. And this is the children of the cross. Like, this is Judah Being prophesied for Isaiah for the time of day. This is what Isaiah says. What will you do on that day in the And the ruin that will come from our father? To so whom will you flee for hope? And where will you leave with love? Nothing remains but to come out among the prisoners or fall among the slaves. For all of his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. This idea of God's hand being stretched out still is another metaphor of God's judgment. And so today, if you are not in you have never picked up to the price of bread and saving, And this is true God's hand is still raised. And at the end time, and like what we did in this, this we shall say right here, when he brings it by. when the breath of sits up, we will be captive among them. Right? But notice this question here. To whom would you flee for help? The good news of that is that we have Isaiah 11 verse 1. There is a promise inside. Messiah. You can flee them in you don't have to take this log, this reference to this, because Christ already lived it ahead, right? So this this Isaiah as he in Christ that we see in the Gospel, we understand that just like Isaiah said, he was He lived a perfect life, with righteous, never did anything. And yet still, he was crucified on the cross. So why did they do that? He was perfect. They did that, but he he was crucified with Christ, for the sin that I did. For the sense of you. Right? He on that cross took God's life. He took the breath of God's hands. He took upon himself in his body the full righteous wrath of the holy God. And he did that on our behalf. The Bible says that he was buried for three days and he died for And the beauty of it, right? The beauty when Christ does, when he breaks his life in the breadth of his birth. If you are bound in Christ. If you repent of your sin, it's suddenly to turn away from them. get to turn to faith in Christ. In faith, knowing that Christ is on the cross was enough to cover your sin send then his hand so goes down because he couldn't. So, my prayer today is that if we're here today that would send you would simply repent of your sin. When this day comes, when his bride, just hand is going out, turn the, of the is coming, don't be counted as part of it. People will be over it. Together, David, we don't have to. Except Amen? Mm-hmm. So Jesus' righteous judgment gives us hope, both now and in return. So we see his righteous judgment in the earlier part of Isaiah, and we see it when he returns as well. But again, it's only goodness, news, it's only hope for us So again, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. We'll move on to our final show. Righteousness shall be the development of the church, and faithfulness shall the of the church. Simply put, Jesus will wear righteousness, so doing all things well to be the Father, and faithfulness and unwavering commitment will always be the right of his Christ. He will put those on, in everything they encounter. come to first coming or second coming, Everything is done out of righteousness and out of favor, out of this the light that he has. In a similar way, you are instructed to do okay? I mean, the, the same thing. Let's follow our case where in Christ's And let us too be driven by the light in the same way that Christ took these things that uh, he did to the shell of okay. not judging people by appearance, not judging people. Like this, by being drawn, by actually intentionally yeah. going to the board of the book, the the and then finally, let us <laughs> not be counted among them. Right? Let that fear, that central fear, have to be a mission. To talk about it. We mm-hmm. are kind of money like, But that central fear is a right fear to have. But if not one fear if you have this, you have this transmission to that vice by the creation of the table. So, with that, that's my time. <laughs> prayer. For God, we're God, so very thankful for this opportunity to, word and to hear from Isaiah. Father, again, we thank you for We thank you for the wonderful examples that you set for us in this section of Isaiah 11, 125. We thank you for the truthfulness that. He, too, the Son of God here hear the Lord. So, like the Lord, it is with the Lord. Father, this morning, I ask that you will all be convicted by the example he of what you said. And you, to too, will follow our instructions do the same as you shall, for the Son of God. Amen. Yeah.